Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. Let's give our attentive listening to the reading of God's holy word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word and giving it to us, Lord, wherever we may be coming from, uh, whatever we may have experienced or wherever we may be in terms of our trust or belief in you. Uh, Lord, you speak to all and your word can impact all. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, you would give us um, listening ears uh, in our hearts uh, to receive what you have for us and, and let it bear fruit. Let it uh, take uh, effect uh, in our lives. Let it change us according to your will. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is a story that many of us, I think, are familiar with, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But I think it's also a story that, uh, that's also one of the most misunderstood and misapplied in all of New Testament, I dare say. Uh, that was certainly the case for me. I realized my original understanding of the parable of the Good Samaritan was not at all um, accurate or all that biblical. Um, and the problem with that is not just missing out on something theological, but, but it kind of messed me up practically in, in how I love my neighbor because that's what this parable is about. It hinders me from being a true neighbor that Jesus is calling me and really all Christians to be. So as we continue in our series in pursuit of a healthy church, uh, let's relearn this parable. Let's continue to reform our understanding of what it means to be a true neighbor to others so that we as a church would know how to truly love our neighbors as ourselves. I think at least a healthy church would at least understand what that truly means and, and strive to, to, to live that out. So let's dive in. Here's how I want to unpack this for you all. Um, first, we'll look at the point behind the story. The point behind the story. Uh, second, the answer within the story. And third, the twist hidden in the story. Okay, the, the point behind the story, 
the answer within the story, the twist hidden in the story, these three points, all right? So point number one, the point behind the story. Um, starting from verse 25, what you see is a lawyer, a law expert uh, during this time, which means an expert in Jewish law. He's standing before the public, and he asks Jesus a question. And it says here that he did this to put Jesus to the test, to put Jesus to the test. And the question he uses to put Jesus to the test is, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How is that a, a, a testy question? Uh, first of all, uh, we have to understand what he means by eternal. Uh, by eternal, he doesn't mean what we normally mean by it, something more quantitative, right? A duration of time or lack of time, right? It goes on forever. Um, whereas for the, the Jews, the Jewish concept of eternality was more qualitative, meaning what kind of life? When they talk about eternal life, they're talking about what kind of life it will be. Um, it was more so uh, eternal life with God, enjoying God, uh, living in his eternal blessings as embodied soul creatures that we are. That was eternal life to them. And that makes sense of what he's asking a bit more in his context. What must I do to inherit that? Okay. Um, what that's revealing also is a very common understanding, very fundamental understanding in, in, in Jewish teaching, and that is the way that you reach this qualitatively meaningful, desirable, eternal life with God is through your works, basically. Uh, through, through your performing correctly, properly under the law. Okay. Um, so it's a work-based, performance-based status and relationship with God. This is where the test emerges. Jesus, do you even know all the, the legal requirements that come with salvation? You talk a lot of salvation, but do you know all the legality that goes into it? So he's challenging Jesus this way. Now, notice how Jesus answers that. He doesn't say, oh, you don't need the law. You just need to have faith in me. He doesn't say that. He responds with this question. What is written in the law? What is written in the law? Uh, he, he points the lawyer back to the law and the singular law, as in the most fundamental foundational law of all, the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 27. He, he points him not away from the law, but to its very core, doesn't he? Right? And that's because Jesus is leading up to this next thing he says in verse 28, which is kind of outlandish. Do this. Do this and you'll live. What is he doing there? He's, here's what he's doing. He's showing the lawyer from within his own religion, within his own doctrine, within his own framework of work-based salvation, that salvation is actually impossible. There is no salvation. Why? Nobody has done this. No one has ever loved God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength, every ounce of their being, every second of every day. Same with loving their neighbors as themselves. No one has kept this law, the greatest law. So the, the lawyer wanted to expose Jesus of either 
misunderstanding the law or not being familiar with the law, and Jesus is actually taking him to task and exposing him, do you know the, ba- the most basic of all the laws? And have you kept that? He's revealing in a sense that the lawyer was uh, digging a hole for himself by emphasizing the merit of the law keeper. Because no law keeper has lived up to the greatest law. Everyone's a lawbreaker under that law. Everyone, by that standard, uh, faces not eternal life or eternal blessings, but eternal sentencing as lawbreakers. The point that, that Jesus is making here, before he even gets to the parable, is that eternal life can never be achieved by good works nor by meeting any sort of religious standards, whether that's Judaism or something else. And this applies to even a secular worldview and a secular system of operating in life. I mean, pick any system, and it will sound more or less the same if you really get down to the bottom of it. Obey this, follow this, try harder, work harder, measure up, meet this standard, then you merit salvation or uh, utopia or nirvana or social acceptance. You get there based on how you perform, essentially. You're persevering in your own perfectionism and conformity to a given standard. That's how you make it. And, and that's how you get accepted. That's how every religious or secular system functions. And Jesus is saying, that's not Christianity. That's not the point. The point is eternal life is only received, not achieved. It's received by grace alone. Unmerited, undeserved grace. Why? Because we're all lawbreakers. We're all undeserving of eternal life. We forfeited it through our current way of life. He's saying you'll never make it on your own. No amount of religious, moralistic efforts will get you there. Therefore, grace alone is what you need. That's the point behind the story. It's grace. It's grace. Now, does the lawyer get it at this point? Uh, It says in verse 29, this lawyer desiring to justify himself still said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This indicates um, the lawyer's basic attitude at this point is still, I do measure up though. I am a law keeper. Because give me your definition. Give me your best definition of a neighbor, and I bet you I'll measure up to that. He completely misses the point, challenges Jesus continually. Okay, give me your legal definition of a neighbor. What does that word even mean, Jesus? And I'll show you how I measure up to a clear legal definition of what a neighbor is. And at the same time, he's kind of being, you know, I mean, he's doing what lawyer does, uh, being tactical in a legal sense, narrowing the command down to something that's more achievable because if I can just draw my boundaries around who counts as my neighbor, then I can keep that version of the law that's tailored to my preferences, right? I can exclude some people over here and include the people I want to include. That's doable. And sort of in a backhanded way, what he's implying as well is, surely, Jesus, you do not mean by loving your neighbor, I have to love everyone because that's crazy. Surely there are some people I can exclude from this definition of neighbor. And in response to that question, Jesus tells tells a parable of the Good Samaritan. And through that, he answers the question, who is my neighbor? So let's go to that. That's the second point, the answer in the story, the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? 
Now, you know the parable pretty well, I'm sure, but here's a summary of it. A Jewish man was riding through a dangerous path um, between Jerusalem and Jericho. And and along the way, he gets robbed, which is a very common thing that happens. He he gets robbed. he, He gets stripped, brutally beaten. He's left there to die. Then comes a Jewish priest and a Levite, and these are people who are supposed to be the most blameless and noble characters within the Jewish religious community, exemplary people. Both of them see their fellow Jewish brother dying and leave him dead. Um, And we think that's pretty cold, yes, but unreasonable, no, because... um, Stopping along a dangerous path to help someone like this was, I mean, you only do that to, at a great risk to yourself. It's like diving into the water to save someone from drowning. When you, whenever you do that, you risk drowning yourself, right? So cold, maybe. Unreasonable, no. There's a rationality to walking by. This is not the kind of place you just stop by and, and indefinitely help someone. But then comes a Samaritan. And what do we know about Samaritans? Here's some historical context. Uh, They were basically the sworn enemies of the Jews. The Jews had a special hatred for Samaritans. Uh, They viewed them not only as religious heretics, but for various historical and political reasons that goes back centuries, uh, they viewed them as a racially, politically, culturally, societally, religiously repulsive people group. They, had, they wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. And yet, right, in verse 33, it says, the Samaritan comes to where this Jewish man was. He sees him. He has compassion on him. Came to him, he saw him, has compassion on him. And then risking his own life, he stops to bind up his wounds and he applies oil and wine, which is kind of their version of emergency medical aid. And he moves him to an inn. Not only that, the Samaritan then pays the innkeeper and says, in verse 35, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He's basically hiring the innkeeper part-time to take care of this stranger he just met on the road until he's fully recovered, which is no small financial commitment. And what you're seeing here is essentially a man who with his heart, right, compassion, with his body, his, his hands his, and his animal, and with his mind, his thoughts, even as he leaves him, he's thinking of how he will be doing. With his heart, soul, mind, body, he's loving this neighbor. Someone who views him with nothing but contempt and hostility. And end scene, end of Jesus' parable. Okay, what was Jesus trying to teach the lawyer and everyone else listening through this parable? Well, first, it's got to be this. Immediately, uh, it implies to, to a people so prone to exclude from their definition of neighbor a racial, cultural, political, societal, religious enemy, Jesus is saying to them, if you're my people, if you're a people of God, if you will inherit eternal life, you must cross all those boundaries and love them too. Who do you get to exclude from your definition of neighbor? No one. That's what it means if, if, if a Samaritan and a Jew are supposed to be neighborly. 
The only qualification for someone to be your neighbor, according to this parable, is that that person has to be basically a human being in need. A human being with needs. That's the basic definition of a neighbor. Even if that's a stranger you didn't choose to encounter, even if that person is your enemy, nevertheless, God has placed in your path, in your, in your view. Uh, Miroslav Volf, he's a theologian who said this about the parable, quote, a revolutionary moral innovation Jesus Christ brought into the world is the command to care not only for people tied to us by some special bond, but for those to whom we have no sturdier relation than the happenstance of their proximity in a given time. That is the love of neighbor. Anyone who shares the happenstance of proximity in a given time, that's your neighbor and my neighbor. But see, um, if you're like me, we have this this inner voice of the lawyer, do we not, asking the same question? But who is my neighbor? And implying in that, surely not him. (laughs) Surely not her. And not them. Uh, Surely not my enemies. Uh, Surely not those who have rejected me. Not those who have wounded me and offended me. Surely not them. Jesus is giving us all a response to that inner lawyer's voice. And his response is, yes, them too. The answer to the question, who is my neighbor, basically is, yes, them too. But that, that inner voice is, is not easily silenced, is it? Uh, but what about... What about those who are ideologically so opposed to what I believe, those who are so emotionally discordant with me, like we're on a completely different frequency? Uh, Those who are just unappreciative of me and my goodwill. Uh, People with no sense of boundaries. To every what about, uh, Jesus' answer would be, yes, them too. This doesn't mean that you, um, you can't ever disagree or contradict anyone or ever say no or, or draw any boundaries. It doesn't mean that. It means you do all of that in love. You do it in such a way that would make your neighbor draw closer to you, not isolate them further and further. Uh, you can still correct. You can still contradict. You can even have intense disagreements with your neighbor but you are still to love your neighbor in spite of all of that and draw close and draw them in. One of my favorite um, fun facts in politics is the seemingly inexplicable friendship between the two late Supreme Court justices, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia. Two people on the opposite ends of a political ideological spectrum complete opposite ends. When one guy writes the uh, majority opinion, the other person is usually writing a dissent. That's how opposite they are. Um, But somehow, best of friends. Inseparable. One of my favorite stories is uh, when a friend of Justice Scalia saw him ordering two dozens of roses for uh, Justice Ginsburg on her birthday. The friend who noticed that asks him, 
What good have all these roses done for you year after year? You send these roses every year. What good has, have these roses done for you? Name one case of significance where you got her vote. To which Scalia replied, some things are more important than votes. Some things are more important than votes. That's a, that's a good example of neighboring someone, realizing neighboring is more important than fill in the blank with your preferences. Neighboring is more important than my disagreements, whether that's cultural, political, social, religious even. You can disagree on all sorts of things, but still you can choose to neighbor that person. Again, you can say contrary things. You can say no and still be a loving neighbor. In fact, Truth is, it's sometimes more loving to contradict someone, and it's shallowness. It's shallow to leave someone in a place uh, where they're without the truth that, that must be said, where you, you, you remain quiet when words are actually necessary. That actually is more shallow than the, the love that is loving enough to confront, loving enough to enter that awkward moment of confrontation. But whether you speak or remain silent, you are, as people of God, to do it all in service to your neighbor and love for your neighbor, being for them, uh, for their res restoration, for their reconciliation with you, for their improving in their relationship with you, for, for their self-improvement. That's the point of neighboring someone and drawing close to someone. Why? Because that is why God has placed them in our path. To see them, have compassion on them, show them mercy, offer them our hands and feet. Anyone in the happenstance of proximity in a given time. A human being around you in need. That is the parable's answer to who is my neighbor and the, 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 the most immediate implication is this is God's calling for you and me, for his people, if we are his people, to welcome them all as our neighbors. So if you are currently uh, drawing a line somewhere right now to exclude someone from your neighborly love and care, Right, from your generosity, from your hospitality, from your forgiveness. Right? Um, Jesus would say, Wait, that, that isn't just your departure from your neighbor. That's departure from Christ and his mission. Uh, these are not words of, right, these are not coming from some ethical textbook, is it? Right? These are words of the founder of our faith, the founder of our religion. You know, people often ask, what is... Lord, what is your will for my life? I want to know your will for my life. Well, this is one. <laughs> Love your neighbor. And yes, them too. <laughs> but to, to distance our, ourselves from, from this agenda of God, this mission of God, is really to distance ourselves from God himself. Right? Um, as it were, we're being distanced from our divine neighbor. And if this has been you, and as often, 
often I find that this is me. I want to encourage you to return to this, this will of God for your life. Um, repenting before him and being forgiven again and be welcomed in by his grace again and know what it's like to, to offer that to others. Because again, it is, it is the founder of your faith who says, love your neighbor, and, and by that I mean everyone including your enemies. Then if you are indeed belong, someone who belongs to this faith and someone who claims to follow this man, um, then you must draw close to your neighbor because that's how you draw close to your savior. If you, whatever you do for the least of these you've done for me, whatever you do not do for the least of these you do not do for me, he, he is the one, he is the one equating himself with our neighbors and equates our treatment of them with our treatment of him. He's the one doing that. So how close are you to your neighbors? That will be indicative of how close you are to God and his heart. In a, sense, the, the, in a sense, the real answer to who is my neighbor is Christ. That's the answer to who is our neighbor. It's Christ and those whom he has called us to love, whom he has placed in our path. All right, that's the answer to the question. Now, are we ready to right, just receive the benediction and go and just start doing this? Not quite. <laughs> There's something even more foundational here that we have to catch, and without it, we will never uh, find the will or the strength or the desire to do this ever in our lives. And to catch this, we have to understand the, the twist that's hidden behind the story, and that's the last point. Um, in, in the book Generous Justice by Tim Keller, and some of you have read this with me during like the thick of COVID. Some of you may recall this. He makes an observation about this parable, and, and, and he calls it a remarkable twist. And so those of you who read the book with me are familiar with this. Um, it's a remarkable twist, but surprisingly an often missed and misunderstood point of this very well-known parable. And it is this, that this is not a moral lesson about you being sent out to be a good Samaritan. That is not the point. Uh, remember, who, who the story is being told to, an entirely Jewish audience who considered Samaritans to be their sworn enemies. They want nothing to do with the Samaritans. So if the moral of the story was be like the protagonist, be like this man who truly loves his neighbor, the Samaritan would not have been the protagonist of choice because no honest living Jew would say, I want to be just like the Samaritan. That is not the point of the story. Can't be. The point is for the Jews to see themselves not as the hero who comes and helps the beaten man on the road, but to see themselves as the beaten man on the road, the Jew. As utterly helpless people in need of one thing, mercy from their enemy. For their enemy to come along and stop and have compassion on them and save them. The twist of the story is that the point is not that you must be a good Samaritan, but that you need one. And that you have this good Samaritan in God, in Christ. I wonder if you can identify 
this narrative in, in your relationship to God because that's where we unlock this. That's where we truly apply uh, the, the true point that's behind this parable. Whether you can identify yourself as someone beaten and left abandoned on this path called the world, right? this life of sin and misery. And here comes the one that you have hated through your thoughts, words, and deeds. Uh, someone whose creation you've abused. Someone whose resources you've harbored and hoarded to only serve your own purposes rather than to serve his. And the thing that you need most desperately from this, this enemy is not, is not his approval of your performance, but his sovereign mercy. This is a story ultimately about God, our enemy, coming to us, stopping for us, seeing us, rescuing us, and saving us. The, the twist is you're not the Good Samaritan. The point is you need one. And he's here. And his name is Jesus. I like to think the lawyer gets it at this point because of his answer in verse 37. He answers, the one who showed him mercy is the true neighbor. He identifies the true hero of the story. The hero is not self-sufficiency, my perfectionism, my measuring up, my religious devotion, piety. The hero is sovereign mercy, the sovereign mercy of God. And therefore, right, if if we have truly received this mercy from God, then, then we, we gain access to something that's utterly unique to us, which is the duty and the beauty of the life of mercy. Uh, not only living the life of mercy because it is right and it is dutiful, but because we know what it's like to receive mercy in a world that's desperately in shortage of it, in shortage of mercy. But yet we have this infinite mercy in our God who has seen us and loved us in our helplessness. And that makes it, therefore, our calling and mission to offer to the world what the world will never offer us. Mercy, grace, forgiveness, love. If you make yourself the source, you make the world the source, other people the source, you will never achieve this. You will never exemplify this. You will never live this out. But if the source of your strength is Christ and his sovereign mercy for you, if he is your good Samaritan, long before you go out and try, to try something crazy like that, when you realize he is your good Samaritan, you will begin to resemble him more and more, one degree to the next. We do this not just because it's lawful, but because it's beautiful as people who have received it. That's why we are to go and love our neighbors as ourselves. Oh, but to what extent and to what degree 
with what sorts of boundaries. Uh, the, the simplest answer to that, guys, is to the extent that it costs you. Uh, to the extent that it does require you f- from you a sacrifice. Uh, sacrificing what you're reasonably entitled to, but now, not counting that as something to be grasped, but emptying yourself. Because that's the mind of Christ, according to Philippians 2. So likewise, we offer our neighbors mercy that is costly, love that is costly, forgiveness that is costly, that makes you feel like you're carrying a cross. Why? Because we worship a God who carried the cross for us. We worship a God who is our Good Samaritan. And he didn't just risk his life, did he? He he actually surrendered it for us. And it is only by our remembrance of him and his spirit filling us each and every day that we can say to one another and to ourselves, let's go and live likewise. Do the impossible. Do the supernatural. Do something the world considers to be something extinct. If not, you know, if, if not endangered, it's, it's just unseen. Like Shakespeare said, mercy is, is not, I mean, what is it? it? It is the dewdrops from heaven. It's not something earthly. It's, it's not earthly. It's not natural. The strong eat the weak in the natural. Mercy is supernatural. And therefore, we need God's supernatural strength to equip us to do that. And I want to leave you with just this final pastoral encouragement. Uh, begin here. <laughs> begin where God calls us to begin, and that is with the household of God. See the people in your path here. Notice areas of helplessness and need in the people here. Uh, See them. Begin to see them, whether it's in the lobby or during meals or in someone's home at an event. Give them your listening ear and listen some more. Offer encouraging words. Offer your hospitality. Offer uh, your patience. And when necessary, offer them your honesty. And begin to neighbor one another here. Where we have a rich reservoir, right? A treasure chest of divine mercy fueling us. We can start here. Remembering it's not because we think we can be. We think we can be the Good Samaritan, but because we know we have one in Christ. And because his spirit lives inside us by his help, true neighboring becomes a possibility. Uh, Changes and shifts to our relational way of life. Who walks through our doors and sits at our dining table, these changes become possible. Christ-likeness becomes possible. Pursuing a healthy church becomes possible. Not because of us but because of the Good Samaritan in us who, whose spirit empowers us to live as he lived. So thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for sending him along our path. Thank you for his kind, merciful eyes that 
beheld us and stopped for us. Thank you for his compassion on us. Thank you for the way that he surrendered all that is his so that we would claim it all. And all that was ours, the punishment we deserve for our law-breaking, he took upon himself. We thank you for your son. We thank you for sending this good Samaritan into our lives. Lord, um, help us uh, be filled with our gratitude for him, thanksgiving to him, adoration for him, and help him help us to see him not merely as someone who did the right thing, but someone who is beautiful in our eyes. Um, and therefore, Lord, cause our hearts to, to yearn for him, to imitate his way of life now. Uh, Lord, the world is not merciful. People are not merciful. But we have a Savior who is. We have a Spirit who is. He's living inside us. So empower us to be nothing like the world and to live as light in the darkness, city on a hill, so that, Lord, uh, as they behold us, they will give glory to you and taste and see uh, your mercy through us. We ask this in your Son's holy and merciful name. Amen.